0: Three. Contra is friction. Contra is Contra nuanced. Is nuanced. Contra, Contra is transgressive.
1: Is good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a
0: space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture.
1: How can disability culture inform our ways of thinking about communication technologies and digital spaces? In this episode of Contra, I talked to media scholar Liz Elsesser about the politics of technological design. I am so excited to welcome Liz Elsesser to the podcast. Liz is assistant professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. She's the author of the book, Restricted Access, Media, Disability, and the Politics of Participation, which was published by NYU Press. And this is a really important book because it was the first cultural analysis of web and digital media accessibility for people with disabilities. And Liz is also the co-editor of the book Disability Media Studies and is doing work now on emergency media and infrastructure. So welcome, Liz.
0: Yes, thank you. I'm so excited to be here and uh, talk about these things with you because, as we've discussed, we're sort of two sides of the same coin. You talk about the real world, and I talk about the digital world.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you, and I, I also think the digital is very much part of the real world, and that's something I hope we can discuss as well. Yes. Um, So. As you may know, if you've listened to other episodes of the podcast, really the purpose of this is to capture the conversations that we're already having about disability, design, technology, media, etc., that are thinking about accessibility in a critical way and are really going beyond the kind of... um, treatment of accessibility as a sort of common sense idea which is a very Mm -hmm. frequent trope in the way that accessibility is marketed for example to businesses (laughs) and stuff like that Um, and bringing the tools of cultural analysis to thinking about accessibility differently and so um, I'm really excited to talk to you about this because I think that you're offering us a lot of different tools and um, Really drawing on various fields of knowledge to think about these questions in a way that disability activists and scholars may not even be aware of that like these tools exist. So um, one thing that maybe we can just start out by talking about in a broad way is how are you thinking about the relationship between accessibility design um, and disability politics?
0: Yeah, I mean, I like that's your beginning question, because that is like the biggest question. (laughs) But I think that it's um, an interesting thing to think about, because when I was working on restricted access, uh, I was working from a sort of media studies and science and technology studies approach. I was doing a lot of archival work. I was reading a lot of legal documents. I was talking to people who had been involved with Uh, legal and technological processes, uh, and we really quickly fell into these sort of circuitous understandings of accessibility. Um, One person who shall remain nameless told me that something is accessible if it meets the accessibility standards, um, which, yes, but also that's not helpful, that's not practical, that doesn't speak outside of this very bureaucratic context. Uh, and one of the things that then was so interesting with the second half of that project was when I was looking at the way that um, disabled bloggers and social media campaigns and these sort of ground up uh, understandings of access from a disability culture or disability politics perspective, uh, they frame things very differently, uh, less bureaucratically, less in terms of, um, pre-existing understandings of what something should be. Uh, And what struck me as most interesting about it was the degree to which they framed it uh, culturally or affectively as a matter of feeling or as a matter of belonging or as a matter of um, some kind of felt experience of being welcome. Uh, And that I thought was really provocative Uh, in terms of pushing back on some of the bureaucratic understandings of what access could be. Uh, Because I fleshed it out in the book in terms of what I call cultural accessibility, this idea that if something is going to be accessible not just in a sort of bare bones functional way, then it needs to be accessible in a way that feels resonant and inclusive and that features Uh, collaboration and participation, um, rather than this sort of top-down idea that we design something accessibly for these people who aren't already part of the design process. Uh, So that was, I think, a really important shift uh, in terms of how that book understands accessibility, because it very much starts in the bureaucratic and then tears that down. (laughs) Yeah,
1: thank you. Um, So it sounds like you're giving us a way to think about the idea that accessibility has to go beyond the code. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if we could just talk a little bit about um, what it is about codes and standards that is so limiting. Um, Yeah. You've mentioned that they're bureaucratic, but maybe we can kind of like unpack that a little bit too for people who may not be familiar with what codes are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, a lot of my work was starting in the world of web accessibility, uh, which really got its legs in um, HTML markup language, right? How do we make HTML accessible for screen readers in particular, and later for other kinds of assistive technology? And as a result, they tended to be trying to codify or write down it's not a checklist, at least a set of best practices for practitioners like, oh, you should do A, B, C, D. Um, and this only becomes stronger when you start seeing accessibility for technology uh, written into legal structures. Uh, legal structures were looking for something that was in, enforceable, right? Where you could say, yes, this meets criteria. No, this doesn't meet criteria. And so one great example is alternate text for images Uh, Images should have alternate text that provide a description of either their content or their purpose. uh, So that someone who's using a screen reader or who has a browser that doesn't load images or a terrible internet connection, right? There are all kinds of reasons people use alt text uh, will know what's in the image. But the sort of checklist standard for that is images have alt text. Now, alt text can be really bad. Um, I walked some students through this recently. Uh, We were looking at a website from the Smithsonian, and they had a picture with the alt text vintage listeners. Do you even know what I'm saying? No, that doesn't bring an image to mind. That doesn't tell you what it's for. That doesn't tell you what's in there. Um, And these are the kind of things that standards are really bad at capturing, like, Alt text must be meaningful and, into- and useful is a much harder standard uh, when we start talking about enforcement. And so when we want something to be accessible uh, in a sort of culturally effective way, then we're talking about these details. You know, my students rewrote that as black and white 1920s photo of two people listening to a radio. <laughs> mm-hmm which is much better than Vintage Listeners. <laughs> but um, from a standards perspective, those are exactly the same.
1: So, in I mean, I guess if we're thinking about what more meaningful cultural practices would be, are there better standards to be set for alt text? Or is it a matter of kind of having like best practices or being part of disability culture and learning better practices or, you know, like how do, how do we do yeah. accessibility around that?
0: Well, one of the things that I always come back to with digital accessibility in particular uh, is that nobody has any education in it. And I taught a six-week course on digital accessibility recently. Uh, and one of the things that I included was a survey from um, Web Accessibility in Mind, which is a great accessibility sort of consulting and resource organization. Uh, 93% of people who do this professionally have no educational background in it, which is enormous, right? <laughs> That's everybody. And that means that people are learning on the job. They're learning from the standards or they're learning from a community of other practitioners. And they aren't always learning it in a context that talks about disability culture or that explains the difference between good alt text and bad alt text. Um, This is something that people may get to on their own or they may not. Uh, So I think it's a huge sort of educational gap in that this is something that particularly for computer science students is still just absent from the curriculum and maybe you pick it up later. Whereas you could easily imagine a world in which it is part of the curriculum. If you do sort of develop accessible websites or mobile apps, it's part of everything you're doing. It's part of your design layout, it's part of your functionality, it's part of your hover text, right? It's part of everything you're doing. If you don't know that, then you don't do any of it and you have to do it later. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we get into these sort of discussions about retrofitting and expense. If people had the background and the education and the conversation uh, before they were asked to build something, then that might look different.
1: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It um, it makes me think about how our course management software at Vanderbilt, which is called Brightspace, um, it's actually, so we just got this two years ago, and it is way better than the ones that we had before. And one of the things I like about it is that anytime you upload an image, a little pop-up comes up that asks for alt text. But I always oh, that's right. wonder... What do people do who do not know what that that? is, right? Yeah, well, yeah, Yeah. why doesn't everything do that? But, like, for people who've never heard of alt text before, it doesn't provide directions or even best practices, so how would they know the degree of detail and what kind of information would be beneficial and that kind of thing? Um, And we actually had um, last year through the Center for Teaching a series on accessibility in the classroom that I helped – to uh, organize with some people working at the Center for Teaching. And we would talk about image description. And even though that pop-up existed for everyone in the university, most people in the workshop had never even noticed it before. So they kind of like automatically just clicked through it mm-hmm. instead of writing something there. And so then we had to talk about kind of methods of image description and why we do it and, you know, what you need to have at the bare minimum in it and what amount of interpretation or non-interpretation there should be and why, according to what theories and all of these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And it was a really important moment, I think, for a lot of people, um, especially folks who weren't in like the humanities to think about how images are media and they're mediated and the way that we describe them is also mediated and um, that there's ideology kind of imbued in that. Uh, But I was just like so struck about with how, even though the design of the technology asked you to do it, it didn't mean that people would do it or would do it effectively or even know where to go and check to see if an alt text was attached Mm -hmm. to an image.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I have I have mixed feelings about this too because I feel like on the one hand, of course, we should all be attempting to make things as accessible as we possibly can. And on the other hand, I recognize that this is my research area and thus I know a lot more about it than my colleagues in chemistry. And I bristle at the way that this gets pushed onto everyone to somehow learn about and do Uh, rather than hiring people to be really good at it. Um, Accessibility is not just um, a matter of, you know, checking the right boxes. We could have universities actually putting resources into hiring more people to do this on scale, right? Have someone who's in charge of all the alt text for three or four departments rather than asking 50 people to learn how to do it. Uh, And some of them will and some of them won't. Uh, So I'm, encouraged, actually, one of the things we have here at UVA is a um, senior staff uh, person at the provost level in charge of academic accessibility. Uh, So she's actually overseeing a lot of these resources in terms of how the library and uh, the Center for Disability Access and departmental level um, initiatives are making materials accessible so that it doesn't just have to happen on this sort of individual level uh, where results are really unpredictable.
1: Yeah, that kind of um, reminds me of conversations around ASL as well that, Mm. you know, of course, we all should be learning ASL and uh, normalizing ASL as language like of academia in the US yeah if we were all to DIY interpretation in a staff it would not go well no that would not be accessible to deaf people um in that space unless we were all like super good at academic ASL. And so there are these real limits to sort of like the crowdsourcing model of information Mm -hmm. accessibility. This is something that comes up in my mapping access project too, where it's like you get a bunch of people to look at accessibility features. The quality of that data varies very widely. Who does it and how how much time they put into it and things like that. So um, it really complicates the declarations of something just being accessible because it meets the standard, because there's so yeah. many qualitative dimensions to what that means.
0: And I think it's just important, too, to recognize that accessibility, whether in technology or media or other contexts, is a skill and is something that should be paid for and should be taught and should be encouraged. Uh, it's not just an extra thing that we'll do if we remember, it has value. And that's something that I think uh, is really important in how we talk about it, uh, because while we want to encourage broadly accessible practices, we also want to encourage recognition of people who actually have those skills and have that expertise, um, rather than sort of dismissing what they do as somehow unimportant. Mm
1: Yeah, and bringing in labor issues to make sure that people are compensated for their work. Um, Louise Hickman is doing this awesome project on uh, people who do uh, transcription labor, basically like CART and stuff like that, and the labor dimensions of that that are basically made invisible by the way the technology works as well, right? Like a lot of the time it's someone in a remote location listening Mm -hmm. and typing.
0: Yeah, television captioning works similarly. Yeah, Yeah, that labor just gets sort of erased. And when people are doing really hard skilled work uh, that ought to be recognized.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it also means that the design elements of those technologies um just kind of fall away the way that decisions are made about how Mm -hmm. information gets transmitted and displayed and like those kinds of things um so that's something that it really interests me about media because it is so all of these things are so ubiquitous kind of we consume them on a daily basis but sometimes they feel like they just appear there and the kind Mm -hmm. of like to use an STS term, the black box surrounding them isn't Um but there are like tons of people in that box making all sorts of decisions. So,
0: yeah. well, and I mean, I've argued before that I think to some degree, media industries are interested in promoting that sort of magical black box uh, and promoting the invisibility of access measures um, to mainstream audiences. I think there's a reason that captions are closed, that they are off until you turn them on. Uh, And that's because the industry still imagine the default viewer to be someone who is hearing and who is watching without captions. Captions are the exception and not the rule. Uh, And I think that kind of making invisible of access uh, is something that we see a lot in popular media in particular and indie media contexts sometimes foreground it much more explicitly Uh, but oftentimes access uh, differences and access technologies are I think intentionally hard to see unless you're looking for them Mm -hmm.
1: there's a thing about um, how we design information to include or not include the possibility of captioning that's really interesting to me like I Mm -hmm. recently gave a talk and um, the cart worker was in the room and was there wasn't a separate projector. And so I was asked to make sure that when I designed my slides, that the bottom quarter um, of the page sure. didn't have any text or images on it. So it kind of like shift everything up a little bit, because that's where the cart appeared, the transcription appeared. Um, and I'd never really thought about that before. No one had ever told me to do that. It was also only the second time I'd had cart that appeared on the same screen. So, but then it made me realize like, oh, there are probably all these other times that I should have known as a best practice to kind of shift the content in the PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's kind of, it's things like that and being able to be flexible also that are Design elements of sort of the everyday life of academia or anything else yeah. that uses PowerPoint. Yeah. Um, what are some other assumptions about accessibility that your work challenges?
0: Well, I think um, one thing in terms of accessibility uh, that I think my work pushes on is this idea that digital media makes life more accessible, uh, that digitization makes all kinds of resources and information more accessible on a broad level. And you hear this claim all the time, uh, often from people who are totally unfamiliar with accessibility as a disability practice, uh, but they're talking about it to mean you know, things are more available or things are cheaper right? accessibility in those senses. Uh, And so one thing that I think a lot of my work on media culture in particular pushes on is that just because social media exists doesn't mean that it's accessible. Just because the Social Security Administration puts everything online doesn't mean that it's accessible. Uh, And sometimes we get into situations where, new technologies not only don't include accessibility measures, uh, but they either do away with old accessibility measures or they um, move further away from uh, sort of universal design practices. Uh, So you see this with like the rise of streaming video that initially didn't carry captions even on television content that would have already been captioned. Right. So here you have something that is more accessible in a free availability sort of sense, uh, but doesn't carry the captions that went with it in the first place. Now, that's improved over the past 10 years. Uh, But what I think you're seeing now as well, um, and one of the reasons I'm now looking at emergency, uh, is that you're seeing this proliferation of um, smartphone apps in particular that deal with emergency situations or personal safety or health concerns. uh, And they do so within a very sort of neoliberal model of individual choice and benefit. Uh, They don't work within broader contexts of um, the imperatives for access in traditional emergency systems. Uh, They don't uh, address accessibility concerns. Oftentimes because they're very much figuring their audience as a white middle to upper class uh, sort of technology user, right? A disruptor. Um, And that makes me really nervous uh, in the way that we see new things proliferating that essentially write access out of their mission entirely. Yeah.
1: What's an example of that?
0: So, I mean, there are there are lots, but I think um, there are a number of apps that offer to do sort of virtual escort services. They allow you to sort of push a button and they send a text message to a friend or a family member who can watch on a little map as you make your way home or something like that. So, rather than have a friend walk you home from the bar, you have your mom watch your little dot on the map. Uh, many of these are bit the College students. <laughs> I came up with that example because I'm working from that framework. Mm-hmm. But um, those apps often very much um, privilege someone who is walking at a normative pace. Uh, they route sort of a best route uh, without considering accessibility. Uh, they often have alerts if you don't progress at the speed that it expects you to progress. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you slow down, they think maybe you're in trouble, whereas, you know, if you have some sort of mobility impairment or if you have to take a different route because there are stairs blocking um, one direction and a ramp in the other, these apps often don't build that in at all. Uh, And especially when they're paid services, uh, I think the tendency to write out access is even stronger. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, we um, when we were developing a routing feature for the accessibility mapping project that I'm working on, which was like weirdly very much more complicated than I thought it was going to be. Um, it the interesting that came thing that came up, other than like the coding part being really complicated, was that collecting data about movement speed and potential barriers and things like that. Um, rightly so opened up so many complex questions about the user and absolutely you know it's like we may think of these things as like disabled people and people adjacent to disability studies and stuff like that um but starting to explain that or translate that for kind of like people who are just doing technical assistance um on a project like that was really interesting and then also Mm -hmm. figuring out who would be our prototypical disabled users which yeah a whole other can of worms you know um so it would be interesting if there was like uh like a crip hackathon taking exactly these types of technologies that you're talking about and figuring out ways for them to actually be usable and inclusive because it sounds like what you're critiquing isn't the routing function it's how the routing understands the human that's using the technology
0: absolutely uh, it's something that i've talked about elsewhere seeing being uh the way that technological design often assumes a sort of preferred user uh someone who is going to use it the way often the way the developers would use it hmm. Uh, who is going to um, have the same sort of cultural intuitions and bodily functions and be able to sort of instantly understand and use the technology as intended. Uh, And the reality is that that's only ever a subset of your technology users. Far more people are engaging in sort of negotiated use practices where they do some of what the designers intended uh, and then find ways around the rest. Uh
1: Yeah, definitely, and it would be interesting to think about how to capture data about people who work around the intention. Um, oh, absolutely! Like in in disability geography, that's something that gets discussed a lot in terms of built environments and whether they actually like constrain use and what mm-hmm. it looks like when disabled people like subvert the intended use. Um, so it would it would be interesting to think about accessibility feature being one that collects that data and also
0: then responds mm-hmm. to it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I know that there are best practices obviously involve doing uh, user walkthroughs with a variety of disabled users to see sort of what they do and what works and what doesn't. Uh, but those are not done by everyone, obviously. And um, user testing has some limitations in terms of who's available to perform testing, how it does and does not pay again. Uh, And, you know, oftentimes a lot of companies rely on a sort of small group of user testers uh, to fill in for large populations, which may have uh, diminishing results over time as those users in turn get used to the technology they're being asked to test.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And there are probably categories of users that are not even anticipated and included. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think a lot about how, you know, technological change can bring about accessibility barriers so quickly that, you know, sometimes these unanticipated things happen. Like, presently, I can't really leave my house at night because the LED lighting everywhere gives me migraines. But it's like... Uh. you know every street light everything yeah and it's always worse at night and so i just stay in my house yeah (laughs) Um, you make you make decisions but yeah yeah. but i would wish that that could be different because there's no there's really no way around it you know Um,
0: no no, it's a a big scale problem yeah Uh, that's hard to change
1: (laughs) definitely like an infrastructural problem yeah absolutely it's a result of trying to save energy, and then it kind of has these other um, external implications. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the areas of overlap or difference between media and web accessibility and architectural accessibility. Kind of like where you see them bleeding together or differentiating from each
0: other. So I think, um, as we've talked about before, sort of ideas of universal design are um, very foundational to the way that accessibility issues are talked about in both architecture and web design. Uh, These sort of arguments that if you do this, it will be better for everyone um, are still very, very current uh, within web design field. We definitely still see that. Um, I think in terms of uh, differences, and I don't know as much about the architectural side, so if I'm speaking out of turn, correct me, but I do get the sense that um, there's a really uh, vibrant community of people who do accessible tech development. Uh, they seem to be in sort of ongoing close conversation with one another. Uh, and I don't know to what degree that's the case uh, within architectural contexts. If you have sort of a essentially subculture of accessibility practitioners, um, or if it's a bit more diffuse. So I, I don't
1: know. <laughs> I, I think you're totally right about that. Um, it's something that I think has been the case pretty much um, throughout the history of the development of universal design as well. Like I was really surprised when I was working on my book to find out that the architects were really in conversation with the web accessibility people from the eighties going forward Mm -hmm. because of all sorts of legal things and whatever. And they were borrowing a lot of ideas about usability from them. And also kind of like, taking a departure from architecture into interface and industrial design and stuff like that. Yeah. Because that was a place where it was easier to make an immediate impact than in Uh the discipline of architecture. And so, you know, there are like tons of accessibility experts who work for the Department of Justice doing audits or um, working for architecture firms and things like that. But we could probably count all the ones that we know in a way that (laughs) I feel like in tech, media, web accessibility kind of stuff. It's way more ubiquitous, and um, at least the people I've talked to who teach in those areas, they it's not like uh, it's kind of taken for granted that accessibility is going to be a conversation, Um, Mm -hmm. whereas in architecture it's kind of more of an anomaly to go beyond the code and think about it as like central to design practice.
0: Yeah. And I think some of that also has to do with uh, a legacy in web design in particular, where uh, people were often self-taught, particularly through the nineties. And some of those people who were self-taught were people who uh, didn't fit into educational systems very well, often in part due to disability. And so you have people who were coming to this sort of career as uh, a way of continuing things that they cared about and finding a professional life um, without having to go through official channels. Mm. Um, So there's that little bit of legacy as well. Yeah,
1: I love that. It's It's sort of like the undisciplining of accessibility or like not tying it. Um, so directly, like, in a gatekeeper kind of way to a particular design discipline. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: And that may be changing. It's much harder to become a developer with no credentialing now than it was 20 years ago. Uh, but I, I would hope that there's still some of that um, happening, that this still looks like a field where you might be able to make a difference in accessibility and cultural impact uh without necessarily fitting into pre-existing like you say gatekeeping structure yeah i
1: i would like to see more of that going forward and i wonder what we could do also to kind of encourage um sort of like does disability design knowledge outside of official channels because there's this way that we're like all constantly designing things whether we're conscious yeah. of it or not and there's something that happens in those spaces that's very different than just following like bureaucratic standards and stuff
0: yeah definitely
1: yeah um I have, I've probably, I can't remember if I've mentioned this in a previous podcast episode, but I have this fantasy of creating like a disability design summer school. um, Okay. Yeah, right. Like we would all, you know, teach accessibility theory, disability studies kind of stuff um, to grad students in disability studies and in various design disciplines and kind of like create mm-hmm. a, a space for having critical conversations around accessibility. And I feel like that could be a way to capture people also who are not part of kind of like traditional academic disciplines or not, yeah, you
0: know, cultured in them yet. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, And sort of thinking about the ways that um, from a sort of design perspective, we're all like, as you say, constantly designing things, whether we think about it that way or not. Um, But also thinking about sort of how we design something like you know, an educational experience, you framed it as sort of summer school, mm-hmm. right? And that that's entirely different than saying like, oh, we're going to do a semester-long seminar, right? Summer school ha- carries us at all these other sort of fun ideas and different kinds of pedagogies uh, that and I think that's important. And I think that's important to what you're saying, even if you didn't say it that way. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I think it's important to like break out of the academic kind of structure of of knowledge reception and production mm-hmm. and, and also I feel like doing these things in a convivial space that is not graded and yeah you know, that kind of stuff um, is just really important it's also I, I think of it as an alternative to the kind of like quick hackathon design mm-hmm. sort of model that is often criticized as not really engaging with communities or being of the communities that it's supposed to sure. serve. So, yeah, but that's something we should definitely talk more about <laughs> if, if you are also Yeah, interested.
0: absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: maybe now we could, well, I have uh, two sets of questions um, left. Do you think that your work speaks to media makers and in, if it if so, in what ways? I was looking at the web version of your book and the kind of mm-hmm. archive you have. Um, so, yeah, any thoughts about how media makers so, use your ideas? That's,
0: that's interesting. Um, and I think yes and no. I think a lot of my work is um, kind of too boring for media makers. Uh, and in that sense might speak uh, a little bit better to people on the media policy side. Uh, so sort of... Uh, you know, I've had conversations with folks at the FCC, right? People who are engaged in media policy are often more interested in these kinds of questions about accessibility um, and um, access in general. Uh, that said, I think I have a really broad conception of media makers. <laughs> so um, a lot of my students in media departments in particular often think that they wanna go into the industry in some way Uh, And so one of my goals has always been to say like, well, the media industry is not one thing. The media industry is a whole bunch of different industries. And some of them are things that you aren't even looking at, like uh, organizations that produce captions and subtitles. They hire, they have jobs, you will get to see things six months ahead of time. Uh, (laughs) There are all of the kinds of advantages that you might think of in um, other kinds of like post-production work you could be doing in an accessibility context. Uh, I also think that there is uh, an important conversation to be had about um, broadening conceptions of sort of media makers and media industry uh, to include various forms of independent media. I talk a lot about web series um, because that's one of my favorites. Uh, But you see that there are, you know, people who develop short form videos, people who are developing podcasts, um, who can intervene uh, in media content and access much more nimbly than like Disney can. Uh, And so there's definitely some dialogue there. Uh, I have podcasters and uh, web series producers talk to my students periodically to say like, oh, here's how I went about making this piece of disability culture media uh, without necessarily participating in the larger structures of media industries.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I had a conversation about this with Alice Wong when um, we recorded the episodes with oh, her yeah, kind of trying to figure out what makes a podcast accessible. And there are so many places that people have taken that. Like there are podcasts that are filmed and transcribed and have ASL, for example. So yeah. you don't just access them using like Apple podcasts or Stitcher or whatever. Um, you actually like go to YouTube to access the mm-hmm. podcast. Um And that's a totally different way of even thinking about what the thing is, but it involves all these additional media production, post-production kinds of skills. Um, And so as that experimentation becomes more prevalent, like we actually need more people who know things about accessibility to be able to do the work of producing accessible podcasts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you see it happening in all kinds of, and um, other formats as well. Uh, a friend of mine, Amarajan Christian at Northwestern, uh, oversees a project called Open TV, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, it's all of these sort of short form videos about um, sort of feminist, non-binary, queer people of color. Uh, and they have a couple of disability featured um, shows. And he and I have had conversations over the years about well, how do we make these accessible to the audiences that are being represented and they are trying to reach. Uh, so consider this my plug for Open TV. I love yeah, it. Yeah, definitely.
1: I'll um, make sure to include it in the show notes as well. Yeah, very cool. Um, so the last thing I wanted to talk about was your new work on emergency media, which I think is really exciting and um, it seems to be giving us tools for thinking about infrastructure studies and disabilities mm-hmm. as well. So, whatever you want to share about that.
0: Yeah, this is work in progress. So I could talk about it for hours, and I might not get anywhere. But um, essentially, what I'm working through right now are these questions of how accessibility becomes relevant in different ways in emergency. Uh, And some of this stems from earlier work where I just didn't talk about it, (laughs) because all of those ideas about sort of the invisibility of media accessibility apply to commercial mainstream media. They don't apply to emergency broadcasts. So for instance, you don't need to have a live ASL interpreter for Law & Order episodes you do need to have a live ASL interpreter when you're warning a local community to get out of the path of a hurricane, right? So you have these moments where suddenly disability and forms of access become visible in ways that they aren't normally. And so on the one hand, that's interesting. Uh, But on the other hand, there's a way in which um, the very idea of emergency uh, exists in opposition to sort of a normalcy, like normal life is interrupted by an emergency. And so then what does it mean to think about um, how if we are you know, not going to take for granted a state of normalcy, then maybe we can't take for granted a state of emergency. Maybe there are things about emergency that should actually be uh, understood as constitutive of everyday life that are actually much more diffuse experiences um, and sort of uh, riffing on that I've been thinking a lot about how um, emergency access is something that emergency access is something that we think about as obviously important Like, oh, of course you need to be able to X, Y, Z when someone's life is at stake. Uh, And a lot of that sort of taken for granted understanding uh, relies on assumptions about what a default state of normalcy is. Right? What's an emergency for one person may not be an emergency for another. Uh, And my colleague here at UVA, Jennifer Rubenstein, Uh, has done some work on the idea of claims of emergency, like when someone claims an emergency is happening, uh, that only functions uh, in opposition to a perceived state of normalcy in which things are okay. If, for instance, you're then talking about populations for whom they experience chronic uh, problems or chronic health conditions, then emergency no longer functions in the same way. Uh, I think one of the examples she talks about is sort of gun violence in major cities. Gun violence can't be figured as an emergency if it's the normal state of affairs. Uh, Similarly, I think you get into questions when we talk about ability, disability, and health. What constitutes an emergency when a regular state of being may be one that requires more regular intervention or that requires more regular assistance from others. These things don't fit well within taken for granted notions of emergency. Mm. So, on the one hand, I'm looking at things that are self evidently the media of emergency, like 911 calls. Uh, but I'm also really thinking about this as a category that is a lot um, messier than common parlance would have us think. Uh, and that the divide between what is emergency media and what is regular media is not as cut and dry as it might appear. And I'm just talking. So feel free to cut me off.
1: I I love this. Um, It seems to connect really well to conversations about slow violence and um, kind of uh, like climate change and things like that. And the, the differences between the sort of like visible catastrophic forms of violence that occur and the kind of like slow rise of sea levels until an Island disappears, like that kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. um, what becomes legible or illegible within that. And I can also imagine the way that um, like someone, the way that someone may need to call 911, for example, um, may someone's access needs may be delegitimized by the everydayness of a condition. Um Absolutely. there are not as many infrastructures set up to address people who are, for example, um debilitated because of slow violence.
0: And so yeah, that that does Yeah, I mean just uh, just the the usage of emergency rooms in the United States sort of speaks to this, right? We don't have reliable healthcare services for acute conditions. Um outside of the emergency room. So you have people for whom um, emergency room visits become effective life, uh, become commonplace, uh, because we don't have structures in place that allow for other kinds of treatment, right? Practitioner waits are long and urgent care centers only have some capacities. And so the emergency room becomes this other sort of interesting space that's being used for a wide variety of, uh, needs and uh, services.
1: Um, One thing I was thinking about earlier when you were describing your project is um, what a sort of speculative design project might be that takes up uh, some of these alternative emergencies, the ones that are less intelligible to the existing Mm -hmm. structure. Um, kind of thinking about like, are you familiar with Natalie Uh, she's a mm-hmm. um, she's an artist. She did this one project that was sort of like a community clinic, but you would show up and you would say like I have asthma or something like that. And she would prescribe um, the shutdown of the industrial factory down the street from your house. And so instead of Mm -hmm. an individual intervention, it would be like an infrastructural one. So I wonder if there's something kind of fun and interesting to explore there, um, to shift the meaning of emergency.
0: Yeah. I've been thinking about that as I work on this, because I'm looking at a wide variety of sort of, um, communicative media structures. Like I've been looking at text messages to 911 and I've been looking at Instagram hashtags from hurricane aftermath and uh, all these sort of escort apps that we talked about earlier. Uh, And so I've been thinking about what a sort of critical um, app intervention would look like. What would it look like to have something that allowed you to communicate about a felt emergency uh, in a way that could be received by the people you were aiming it at, right? Which is not always the case, uh, or that could um, understand services in a different way. Um, yeah, I don't have answers to this yet. It's just yes, I am thinking about it.
1: <laughs> it could be a fun thing to collaborate with the lab on if you're ever interested.
0: Yeah, I'll think about it. it because that would be that would be a lot of fun in terms of what this would actually. What would it look like to do something that wasn't uh, indebted to sort of current ideas of emergency?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, Well, I'm so excited about this project and I'm looking forward to reading whatever comes out of. Are you (laughs) imagining it's going to be a book?
0: It is working towards a book at this point. Uh, It's also spinning off into some other directions. Um, I've published a little bit already about um, the blue light emergency phones on college campuses these as sort of an emergency architecture uh, that was put in place to respond to very sort of specific ideas of threat um, and that have had limited effectiveness. Uh, I'm also writing about a number of public service announcements uh, regarding text to 911. That's been really interesting because these um, audio or video announcements always emphasize that texting is helpful for people who are deaf or Uh, have communicative disabilities. Um, And they say this almost exclusively right before saying that if you can hear, you should make a voice call.
1: Uh.
0: And so there's this discursive positioning of texting as an assistive technology when texting might otherwise be picked up as a sort of mainstream way of interacting. Uh, So there's sort of discursive differences between the assistive and the the mainstream is another uh, interesting thing to see playing out here. Uh, most of us will end up in the book, but um, yeah, some of it won't.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair. I was reading that piece on texting to 911, and I was just so curious about why those distinctions are made. Like, are there fewer resources devoted to receiving and responding to texts than to phone calls?
0: They're the same resources. Uh, essentially, a 911 dispatcher would receive a text just like they would receive a phone call. Uh, but there's an idea, there are a couple of assumptions running through there. First, that voice communications will convey um, affect better. So if someone is crying or um, amped up in some way, or, you know, sounds like they are having trouble breathing while they're speaking, that's all information that you wouldn't get from a text. Um, Additionally, dispatchers are kind of trained to listen for background information. So while you're talking to a caller, you might be able to hear like, is there traffic in the background? Um, And again, this doesn't come through via text. So I think part of it has to do with this legacy of how 911 dispatchers are trained, uh, what they're trained to listen for, how they're trained to act. um, And additionally, the sort of legacies of protocol, like the question answer structure, uh, is very much part of a call and a text chain. So while it might seem intuitive to be like, here's a geotag photo of a house on fire, um, now you have enough information, uh, the 911 operator is probably going to still walk through, you know, what is your exact location? What is your emergency fire, medical, or police? Et cetera, et cetera. So there's a sort of inertia. This part of it, um, actually moving to a structure where texts and images and video and all kinds of other material could be made um, actionable requires a much bigger um, change in what's already a really fragmented infrastructure. Uh, one thing I didn't realize before doing this work is that 911 operates on a county by county level. Huh. So the capacities of response and the technological systems differ like even as you're just driving down the highway well
1: it was so exciting to talk to you about all of this and i hope we
0: can yeah thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it it's always fun
1: yeah for sure um and let's be in touch about potential design project collaboration
0: yeah absolutely we'll have summer school and then i'll build an app
1: yeah definitely <laughs> we could make it one of the summer school projects You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com, and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.